I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, remember him? Of course you do. Do you remember any other part of the song? No, it doesn't start with Conjunction Junction. Different song, same genius of Schoolhouse Rock, circa 1973. Here's the next verse. Well, now I'm stuck in committee and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. Unfortunately, young Bill the Bill on Capitol Hill is right. Statistically speaking, dying in committee would still make him luckier than most of his bill buddies. Because congressional committees are one of those things that sort of sound pointless, but actually wield a tremendous amount of power, like TikTok dances, carbon dioxide, or the designated hitter. In the U.S., there's one congressional committee that's often considered the most prestigious and most powerful. The House Ways and Means Committee. On Capitol Hill today, the House Ways and Means Committee will begin work on the president's $3.5 trillion spending bill. The U.S. House Ways and Means Committee. Why? In a word, money. Any legislation that's tax, tariff, or otherwise revenue-related starts in the U.S. House Ways and Means Committee. It also has jurisdiction over small little programs you may have heard of, like Social Security, Unemployment, and Medicare. It's a big deal. That's why a century ago, in February 1921, It was national news that an African-American agricultural scientist by the name of George Washington Carver came to the still highly segregated Washington, D.C. to testify before the committee. At the time, U.S. peanut farmers were being undercut by low prices on peanuts imported from China and wanted Congress to pass a tariff. The United Peanut Growers Association asked Carver to speak as an expert witness. Carver was given five minutes to share his findings from his experiments at Tuskegee Institute, now Tuskegee University. Several members of the committee refused to take Carver seriously. Some of them even thought, "Ah, you know what, blatant racism would be the most effective line of questioning. One congressman asked Carver if he would like some watermelon to go with his peanuts. Carter, who was born into slavery in 1864, refused to be rattled, instead replying that he thought watermelon was fine, but as a dessert food, it doesn't compare with the pies, cakes, and cookies he could make with the peanut. Soon, Carver's five minutes were up, but the committee wanted to hear more. He explained that the combination of peanuts and sweet potatoes can provide a complete and balanced diet. He shared recipes for peanut bread, peanut sausage, peanut ice cream, peanut coffee, but that food was still just the beginning. Again, Carver's time ran out. And again, it was extended. Carver talked about peanut-based gasoline, peanut shampoo, peanut soaps, and peanut face creams. 
He talked about how natural paints could be made from soybeans, glue from sweet potatoes, and how the economic impact of it all could transform the lives of American farmers. A year later, the Ford Cumber Tariff passed in 1922, including a tariff on imported peanuts. Carver's enthralling testimony put him and his self-proclaimed 300 uses for the peanut on the map as the peanut man. Carver referred to his inventions as his kitchen experiments. Some of them were successfully brought to market, but most were never fully realized and some flat out didn't work as designed. But it never slowed him down. Carver developed hundreds of practical uses for crops that had largely been ignored by farmers, yet only filed for a few patents over the course of his career, and repeatedly turned down lucrative offers to leave his beloved Tuskegee Institute. So why go through all that trouble? Why the 300 uses? Why the impassioned plea to Congress about the products to be made with his crops if he wasn't all that concerned with the process of actually making them? Why was Carver seemingly more interested in growing the peanut market than trying to corner it himself? Hello, everyone. I'm Scott Harms. Welcome to Look Both Ways, a podcast about experimentation, world-changing ideas, and the willingness to get things wrong. The show is made possible by Ken and Carta, a digital transformation consultancy who exists to build a world that works better for everyone. Each episode of Look Both Ways follows a two-act structure. First, the unsung experiments of history, the ideas, attempts, and prototypes often overlooked in favor of their more famous and successful siblings. Act two then zips back to the present day to put the spotlight on exceptional people working to solve complicated problems. Often the same types of problems our heroes in Act one were working on. Today we're talking about sustainable agriculture, what it actually means, why it's so very necessary, and a conversation with Emma Fuller, science lead for carbon and ecosystem science at Corteva AgriScience, about how to make it happen at the scale necessary to overcome the very real dangers of climate change. But first, back to peanut shampoo. Ask people what they remember learning about George Washington Carver, and the same answer will come up again and again. Peanuts, or he's the peanut man. Carver was known as the Peanut Man. The Peanuts Man. You might be asking yourself, what about George Washington Carver? Didn't he invent peanut butter? Of the many concoctions credited to Carver, peanut butter actually isn't one of them. But he did cover just about every category of consumer product you could think of, many beyond just peanuts. His inventions also included sweet potato rubbers and inks, soybean cheeses and baking flowers, wood stains from clay, concrete reinforcements from wood shavings, and road paving surfaces from cotton stalks. Sounds like a budding capitalist, right? So what was Carver's plan? To introduce the world to a plethora of new exciting products and sell Carver Peanuts and Legumes LLC to Kellogg's for millions? Not exactly. George Washington Carver's obsession with peanuts, soybeans, and sweet potatoes wasn't for the sake of his wallet. It was for the sake of farmers and the land they tended. More specifically, for the soil. The post-Civil War American South was still dominated by the farming of cotton. 
Cotton sucks out important nutrients like nitrogen from the soil. So when cotton is the only crop farmed on a piece of land, that nitrogen never gets put back and the soil suffers, which means yields suffer and farmers suffer, and in particular, black sharecroppers suffer, often falling deeper into debt to their landlords. A devastating domino effect that starts with a lack of nitrogen. Growing crops like peanuts puts that nitrogen back in the soil. By alternating between growing the two, cotton yields would remain strong, the soil would stay balanced, and farmers could harvest peanuts by the bushel. But what to do with them? Carver had a few ideas. 300 to be exact. Carver knew that smarter choices and greater crop diversity could help lift southern farmers out of poverty. Developing an abundance of uses for those crops set up the same type of economic incentive that made cotton farming so lucrative. Today, we call the practice crop rotation. As a principle, it dates back to ancient civilizations. But before Carver, conservation-minded farming methods were effectively unheard of, particularly in the cotton fields of the South. I think at least in some schools of thought, people would would call it a a land ethic. My name is Raymond Shange. I am currently the Associate Dean for Cooperative Extension on the College of Agriculture, Environment, and Nutrition Sciences at Tuskegee University, and I also serve as director of the Carver Integrative Sustainability Center here at Tuskegee University. We talked with Dr. Shange about the driving force behind Carver's kitchen experiments. The, the inventions and uses for these different plants was almost, a, a, I would call, an accident of his, of his ethic. I think you could force uh, that many inventions out of a, a plant nowadays. Uh, but it will probably take you an entire team of, of researchers to do. But I think it goes to show when a scientist or an academic has a certain powerful perspective, such as a land ethic, that it could really inform their perspective a lot more than you know, I'm here to actually rip apart this peanut and uh, make money or profit off of it. You know, The object of Carver's focus is the same thing at the heart of the regenerative agriculture movement today, the soil. Here's what Dr. Shange had to say. Because, it, I mean, it's the most important thing. I mean, with, with we see the degradation of soil can degrade civilization, right? I mean, that's what our, our entire food system is based off of. Some of us in the, the field see soil as the digestive system of the planet. We're actually rediscovering now is that diversity is the key to soil health. I mean, imagine if you ate one particular thing for your entire life that's not going to promote good microbial gut health. And that's the same thing with soil health. And some of those practices came through uh, in the teachings of Dr. Carver, who promoted um, using composting animal waste and dead organic matter and adding it to soils. And there's actually a uh, bulletin where he talks about maintaining the virgin fertility of soils. Really, this is the microbial world. You know, we sometimes center ourselves in it in terms of what keeps the planet's systems functioning. Uh, Microbes are the the key to, to the planet. Carver aimed at the mindset of farmers, one hungry skeptic at a time. When he was teaching and working at Tuskegee Institute, he put his classroom on wheels. Carver called it the Jessup Agricultural Wagon, named after Morris Jessup, a New York banker and philanthropist who financed the project. Carver would load up the Jessup wagon with peanuts, 
soybeans, sweet potatoes, pecans, and other legumes, and talk with farmers about how growing new crops could transform their soil. Some even credit Carver's Jessup Wagon as the first ever food truck. So yes, the next time your day is rescued by a well-timed empanada truck, you know who to thank. Carver taught at Tuskegee for 47 years, focusing on crop rotation methods, developing cash crop alternatives, and helping new generations of African-American farmers learn how to farm self-sufficiently. Dr. Shange says the key to understanding Carver's impact at and beyond Tuskegee is to take as wide a view of his life as possible. When we take account of him as a total human being and the things that he actually contributed to for all humankind, uh, we saw that he was a spiritualist, he was a scientist, a humanitarian, a healer, engineer, a teacher, a mentor, an inventor, and so much more. When we accept kind of this whole being approach, we see how magnanimous of a, of a, of a man that Dr. Carver was. Carver's closest attempts at turning his work into a thriving enterprise only bring his humanitarian side further into focus. For example, he started the Carver Penal Company, which sold a peanut-based medicine to treat diseases like tuberculosis. Carver's hopes were high, but sales never took off, and the FDA eventually deemed it ineffective. He also developed a peanut-based massage oil, believing it could help treat infantile paralysis, a.k.a. polio. While it was thought to work initially, researchers eventually determined it was the massage, not the peanut oil, that was helping restore some mobility to paralyzed limbs. Experimentation has always lived at the heart of agriculture. In his work, Carver helped farmers and students learn to even further embrace the principles of good scientific thinking and the trial and error that comes with it. There are not many audio recordings of Carver speaking, but here he is, speaking about his kitchen experiments, courtesy of Iowa Public Radio. A laboratory is simply a place where we tear things to pieces. Sometimes we can get them together again if we want to put them together, and sometimes we can. But nevertheless, we can pull things to pieces and get the truth that we are searching for. Thomas Edison once offered Carver a $100,000 a year salary to work in his labs, which Carver declined, staying with Tuskegee and his $1,000 a year salary. When Carver died, he even donated his entire life savings of $60,000 to the Tuskegee Institute to ensure they could continue the work of tearing things to pieces and getting to the truth. Today, Dr. Shange, his colleagues, and the students of Tuskegee University are doing exactly that. As the director of the Carver Integrative Sustainability Center, Dr. Shange leads a group of faculty and students focused on finding new ways to enhance the profitability and sustainability of small, historically disadvantaged, and underserved farmers, ranchers, and rural communities. We are a very young sustainability center. We are kind of a ragtag group of people that um, have the same, or we want to have the same ethic and work with the same ethic as Dr. Carver, Earth first and then humans, and just try to do our best wherever we land. We utilize the appropriate technology, and we do probably the majority of our work is outreach, uh, though we do do some applied research in the field as well. We're still young, still growing, uh, but 
If you just go to tuskegee.edu and look up CISC, it will pop up. They actually do have a magazine as well that's free for distribution. And if it's not currently on the site, you can actually reach out to me at R-S-H-A-N-G-E at tuskegee.edu. That's T-U-S-K-E-G-E-E dot E-D-U. We'll include links to all of the above on our website at lookbothways.kinandcarta.com. Dr. Shange started his Ph.D. program at Tuskegee in 2006. He says he's somewhat shocked but absolutely delighted that conversations about microbial ecosystems and soil health are making their way into the mainstream. He said he hopes people continue being curious about not just how their food is made, but by who is making it. You know, being in the space where people are kind of just just buying uh, without thinking about what they're buying, whatever it be, puts us in a dangerous situation. Uh, but the fact that I'm running into more and more people that understand more about the food system is very encouraging. What else makes me encouraged is to see people thinking more about how to support black, brown, indigenous farmers. To me, there's always kind of been, there's always been a little bit of hush around the conversation, uh, but I think it's been brought to the, at least to the national forefront uh, in the past two years as you know, we've seen, we've seen, first of all, we've seen a great decrease in small farmers, regardless of their race. But then to look then specifically at black and brown farmers has been an even greater decrease. So seeing people actually asking questions about that as well, and seeing young people of color that are getting into farming is very encouraging. The quote reads, the primary idea of my work is to help the man furthest down. This is why I have made every process just as simply as I could to put it within his reach. How far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving, and tolerant of the weak and the strong. Because someday in life, you will have been all of these. It's the statement of his ethics, but even more so a statement of, of his humility and dedication. We talked about some of the, uh, Dr. Carver's accomplishments uh, and just the legend himself. Uh, someone with all of this, uh, imbued with all of this talent and genius. You know, he was offered a job at Ames College, which was, would become Iowa State. But he turned that down to come to Tuskegee Institute and stayed here his entire career. To me, that makes a huge statement. Someone that big, someone that talented can make that choice. You know, who am I then to not lend, you know, my small talents to continue in that? I mean, if we don't care about the and per- person furthest down, who do we really care about then? Modern agriculture is relatively unmatched in the scale, complexity, and urgency at which sustainable solutions are needed. Dr. Shange says it's daunting, but that he's encouraged by a resource that's historically been somewhat scarce. I've got a lot of colleagues at other universities, too, that work in ag, and the excitement of young people right now around farming, food, and just agriculture in general is empowering. It makes me love to go to work every day. So I 
it may be a different future. It may look different. I mean, because this next generation is very much into the technology, technologies that uh, will make farming easier. But at the same time, to see that there's more people interested, especially at the small scale, I think is a wonderful thing for the country as well as the world. Huge thank you to Dr. Raymond Shange for taking the time to speak with us. George Washington Carver has become the type of American folk hero whose legacy is sometimes simplified down to what can fit on a bumper sticker. But pinning him as the peanut man tends to overlook what he valued most in favor of a food inventor type identity that could be just a couple steps away from the Orville Redenbachers or Oscar Myers of the world. Like Dr. Shange said, Carver's many uses for the peanut were an accident of his ethic. Understand the soil, understand the Earth's natural processes, and work within them, not against them. George Washington Carver was preaching sustainable agriculture over 100 years ago, and he was simply continuing what indigenous tribes and other ancient civilizations had been practicing for hundreds of years. Today, no surprise, a great deal of modern agriculture does not follow these sorts of practices. And it costs a lot to feed the planet. In the U.S. today, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture account for about 10% of total emissions. Specific practices known as regenerative agriculture present an extraordinary opportunity to not only emit less, but actually suck carbon out of the atmosphere and store it safely in the ground. Unfortunately, in the overall landscape, those types of practices are still a small fraction of what agriculture looks like around the world. So how do we close that gap? How do we feed the planet and avoid climate disasters? In part two, we talk with someone working hard to answer those questions. In act two of today's episode, a deep dive with Emma Fuller, the science lead for the Carbon and Ecosystem Services Portfolio at Corteva AgriScience. You'll hear Emma talk about what regenerative agriculture and sustainable farming look like in practice. She'll talk about things such as cover crops, crop rotation and no-till planting versus full-till planting. In the agricultural world, pesticides, herbicides, and synthetic fertilizers fall into a broad category of inputs, and selling inputs is one part of Corteva's business. You'll hear from Emma that there are important nuances worth understanding about how those types of inputs are used and why it's not always as black and white as we may want it to be. Second, like most businesses in the world, Corteva knows it's critical to become as environmentally sustainable as possible. They're working towards very ambitious goals to achieve by 2030, including reducing on-farm emissions by 20% while strengthening yields for farmers and training 25 million growers on soil health nutrient and water stewardship, and biodiversity conservation. The short of it? Creating environmentally sustainable ways at scale that keep up with the demands of a rising global population is, well, complicated. Emma is someone taking a fascinating hands-on approach to getting the science, economics, and daily farming operations to all work in harmony. So we're thrilled to get a chance to chat with her. A couple other terms to know. Indigo and Nori. These are both carbon marketplaces. A carbon marketplace is where carbon credits can be bought and sold. So people or businesses looking to lower their carbon footprint, either for ethical or legal reasons, can use companies like Indigo and Nori to buy carbon credits from farmers who are using regenerative methods to pull carbon out of the air. Emma is also a big believer in the critical role marketplaces like Indigo and Nori can play in making large-scale sustainable agriculture possible. 
I also want to add that I do have some experience working in the agriculture sector, including work with Corteva, although not with Emma. So please excuse the nerdery and excitement you're about to hear. Okay, with bases covered, we're joined today by Emma Fuller, Science Lead for Carbon and Ecosystem Services at Corteva AgriScience. Hi, Emma. Welcome to the show. Glad to be here. For people who don't really know Corteva, um, would you mind explaining a little bit about what Corteva does and then talk a little bit about your role at the company? Yeah. Corteva um, sells inputs, tools to farms. So those fall into three big categories. One is seed, corn, soy, alfalfa, those sorts of big broad acre row crops types of seeds. And then also what we call crop protection. So that would be herbicides and pesticides to help support those crops production and control weeds and pests. The third business platform that we have is digital software. And that's where I live. And so that's a broad suite of agronomic and profitability focused tools to help farms run their operation and manage their business and understand profitability. What I do in my day job is I am the director of sustainability science, and I really focus on where and how our software can make a difference in accelerating and solving some of the unique challenges that we have with agriculture, and especially in the environmental side of the house. So first off, sustainability can mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So for your job and for what you can affect at uh, Corteva, how do you define sustainability? Yeah, I'm really pleased that that's the frame that we're starting with because I have this terrible love-hate relationship with the word sustainability, right? Because (laughs) it's not a useful term because you have to say, okay, well, what do you actually mean by that? Yeah. So specifically when I think about sustainability, I am mostly focused right now on environmental sustainability. It's primarily issues around water quality, greenhouse gas emissions, biodiversity, are general themes that come up again and again. Soil health, those sorts of interconnected issues of what's happening with the land, the water, and then the crops that you're not growing or the animals that you're not raising, what's happening with them. The issue has not been with the science, right? It's not been with the tech. It's been with the value proposition, both upstream and downstream to farmers, right? Like there was just not a lot that a value farms are going to get. So that's been the sort of focus of my work at a really global scale is where is there enough persistent value for farms to make it worth their time to enter in all the sustainability data? Or how do we make the sort of capture of that data cheap enough to sort of reduce that side of the cost benefit equation? So in the last, I think, couple of years, carbon markets have really exploded. And so a lot of my attention has been focused there. I started kicking the tires of that in 2019 with our like very early, what I would call alpha with Nori and one of our customers, Trey Hill, and sort of hacked that together, Trey and I and the head of product of Nori to put that together to sort of test that value prop. And so that's been, you know, we can talk more, but I've been somewhat bullish despite a highly uncertain area and a very new space. I'm really excited about the sort of alignment and value prop that it offers that has sort of fixed a gap that I've been seeing that had not been addressed in previous iterations of that sort of sustainability software intersection. So explain how do farmers fit into carbon markets and carbon credits? So there are many different ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and sequester carbon. Some of them are engineered, right? Like Climeworks and others sort of direct air capture, bury it in the ground, sort of stuff. And then there's also what we call nature-based solutions. So these are ways to cultivate our landscapes and our oceans in ways that can accelerate the amount of carbon that's sequestered and reduce the amount that's emitted. Soil is one of those huge opportunities um, in the nature-based climate solution space. Basically, farms can increase the amount of biomass they grow, the amount of carbon that goes into the soil, and reduce the amount that's decomposed, that's lost out through respiration. And through that net 
increase the amount of carbon that we're pulling out of the atmosphere relative to that what's returning to it in the cropping cycle. There is a ton of landmass devoted, especially to row crops. In the U.S., it's like 280 million acres, right? Just a tremendous base. And what's really exciting about farming is that much of this, I would say, pretty much all of the practices we're talking about right now don't cause yield impacts. So there's not a concern of competition. So it's like you get both your ecosystem service of production of food alongside an increase in ecosystem services of carbon sequestration. So it's this win-win and the technology is present today. So this is not depending on an innovation cycle, right? Where in five years, it's going to be scalable and cost-effective. These are practices that farms have been doing for centuries at this point. Like this is not new. And it's crazy when you look back into like the 1800s, they were talking about the same things. Right. So that's what's profoundly exciting about it. Although that underscores the challenge. Like we've known about it for so long, why aren't we doing it? But I think that's what's really exciting about this is this is one of the many tools we will need in the toolkit to be able to address and start to make a dent in climate emissions. <laughs> awesome. And so maybe walk us through one of those things of like, if I, if I, and again, because most people in our audience are not farmers. So the, if, if I grow, let's just take corn as an example, because that's, that's a pretty common one, I would think if, or, you know, or, yeah. or soy, but, you know, sort of like what would be a way that I would normally farm it or, or, you know, and what would be a way that I'd farm that wouldn't be helpful for carbon capture? And then what are the changes I would make to capture more carbon? So I would say the business as usual sort of scenario for farming corn has often been what we call full or conventional till. So really turning over the soil, the top of the soil completely to flip and bury the crop to prepare the seedbed so that it's a fresh, you know, like bare soil landscape in which you're sort of planting seeds. You think of that sort of typical stock photograph of the seedling or whatever, and that soil is clean and brown and there's nothing in it except for that little seedling. That's what sort of baseline business as usual, sort of full till conventional till might look like. Small side note. My husband and I have a small farm. We oh. use draft animals um, for our power. So like I'm talking <laughs> old school stuff at home um, and we plow. So we can talk about that too. The fact that I work hard to address that plow. Anyway, I do it at home. So there's lots of complexity here. So that would be the sort of full till. The other way that you'd often do it is say you plant your cash crop through the growing season and then you harvest it. And at the end, you're done. You leave your field fallow for the winter, right? Because you don't want to spend more money on planting more crops or whatever. And so everything's sort of, especially in temperate Northern latitude where things get cold enough that it won't grow. You don't need to do anything to that ground. That's conventional. The regenerative flip side that sequesters carbon is no-till, completely getting rid of the till. Com- so leaving that soil intact, adding a cover crop over winter. So now you're adding more crops to the cycle so that you're having something growing in the fall before winter hits. And then again, in the spring before you terminate to start your cash crop. So you have more, more biomass and then also adding a diversity of crops. So starting to add alfalfa into the rotation or um, legumes, beans into the rotation, and then possibly including livestock. So helping them graze down your cover crop, adding more amend- organic amendments like manure into your system. Those are all examples of quote unquote, when people are talking about regenerative ag, those are the practices. Hey there, it's me, Future Scott, just jumping in to give past Scott a break. Regenerative agriculture has incredible upside. The practices Emma just described, no-till planting, using cover crops, and animal grazing rather than artificial fertilizer, using a diverse set of crops to balance the soil like George Washington Carver taught us, the superpower these practices unlock 
is the ability to sequester carbon out of the air and store it in the soil. And as carbon emissions continue to trap heat and warm the planet, the ability to not just cut emissions, but actually take it out of the atmosphere, will be a vital tool in fighting climate change. According to the Columbia Climate School, the Earth's soil could actually store as many as 4,000 gigatons of carbon. Even the 2,500 gigatons stored in the soil already is about three times the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, and four times the amount stored in all living plants and animals. So it's an extraordinary weapon in fighting climate change, and it all starts with farmers. So we asked Emma, what's holding us back? Complexity. So regenerative ag is a more complex set of operations. You're juggling many more species. You're trying to cultivate the natural system to take on a lot of what the sort of synthetic inputs you were doing yourself, right? So you're trying to increase nitrogen capture from your 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 legume cover crop, right? Rather than putting in synthetic nitrogen yourself. You're st- so you're starting to try to like build up the resilience of your soil to take off some of the help that you had to provide as a farmer. But the nice thing about being, a, you know, putting that in is you can you can measure that really precisely of exactly how much nitrogen you put down. It's much harder to estimate how much nitrogen your cover crop took in and exactly what the microbes are doing with it. So it takes a lot of experimentation to figure out what's the right mix yeah. of cover crops, how to do the you know increased residue. Like when you don't go to no-till, you're not incorporating the, the crop biomass that you don't harvest back into the soil. How do you manage that? How do you, might, you get new pests potentially, new weeds that come on the scene? So all of that is complex. The benefits, like we said, accrue over time, right? It's like five years, seven years. You know, sometimes you see it as fast as three, but it's it's over time, long term. And the magnitude is really hard to predict. Like I can't tell our customers, yeah, in three years, you'll see a, you know, 25% reduction in nitrogen. Like you might see a 7% reduction in seven years. And so it's Hmm. very difficult to, you know, most of these farms are operating with very slim margins. You know, they're not able to take that necessarily, despite whatever they may want to do, they're really a lot of times operating year to year in terms of making investment and management decisions on the margin. So it's hard to say, spend a bunch of time, bunch of energy, bunch of time, and like possibly startup capital to buy new equipment, buy new inputs. Those costs are concrete and they're immediate for these diffuse long-term benefits. So that's what's really hard. What carbon markets do in that landscape of challenges is they provide more concrete value upfront. They say, there is a value here to carbon sequestration. There is a value here to reduction in greenhouse gas. We can start paying you for that in year one. That also ramps over time, right? I don't want to erase the complexity. You get bigger benefits the longer you go in carbon sequestration and greenhouse gas reductions, the longer that you do these practices, but there is another value. So I would say that today with price, carbon prices where they are, carbon markets alone do not pay for these practice changes, but they can help accelerate these practice changes. They can help de-risk these practice changes so that if a farm is already considering this on some of their acres to address some of the other agronomic issues they have, whether it's erosion or pest pressure, which these practices can help with, here's one more reason to help you say, do it this year. Don't do it next year. Do 100 acres. Don't do 20 acres. Um, This is the year to do it. We talked a little bit on this, Emma. We touched on Sometimes it's difficult to get farmers to adopt them. And again, you, you just laid out a great case why, right? Like, is it financially viable? Is this going to be successful, right? Is it worth the investment, right? So how do you go about that? I mean, like, how, how have you approached that problem in terms of farmers who are even, you know, again, you're using non-advanced technologies here. How has that happened for you or anybody at Corteva to try to get people to adopt uh, technology? Most of our successes have come from listening to farmers themselves, right? Them telling us what they need and what they want. And I think one of the 
things I love about working at Granular and Corteva is that we are listening to our customers every day. We have the ability and access to those farms to say, tell me why this isn't working for you. What, what's the barrier here that you're facing or what's the cost that you're trying to reduce? I think often people fall into that trap of trying to improve the returns on the land without thinking about the increase in cost to labor. So you have a new irrigation tool that helps improve your water efficiency, right? So per acre, you're seeing an increase in yield relative to the amount of water that you're using, but it's a new tool that's complicated to use and you have to train a new guy on it and stuff like that. And they don't have the time for that or the appetite for that. And the returns per acre are not enough to be worth it in their mind. So I think that's sort of the structural challenge that I think everyone in ag tech falls into at one point or another in their lives is like, yes, this net like makes another dollar per acre and farms looking at like, I don't care. I don't have the time. And so I think you mentioned that your original background is not in farming, but you're now into farming. Then obviously you're, you get to go out and meet farmers as part of your, your day job. What was like the biggest epiphany that you had or one of the biggest early on discoveries about farming that you know, sort of shattered some misconceptions? This was like a real surprise to me coming into farming, into the agriculture space as a data scientist at Granular. Just, you know, we, we run at home a very typical family farm in like the public eye, right? Like we have about 15 acres, we do a farm stand, we do a CSA, like we do that sort of scale, like farmer's market fair, direct to restaurants, direct to customers sort of thing. When you look at our customers in Granular and Corteva, they are also family farms, but they are running thousands of acres, right? And it's great. There's like four guys on this operation that run 5,000 acres and you walk out and it's planted perfectly and precisely. And all of that has been because labor is so expensive. And so what's hard about regenerative ag is that it just makes it more complex to manage. You need more people that are more skilled and have the time and bandwidth to be able to do that. And, and the acre base that you need to do it on is so big that it gets, it gets hard really fast. Hey there, it's me, Future Scott, again. What I really appreciated about Emma's perspective in helping us understand these challenges was that she actually kept reinforcing what George Washington Carver became famous for saying, caring about the man furthest down, in this case, the farmer. It's easy to retweet something snappy about agriculture destroying the planet in between bites of a PB&J whose ingredients came from four different countries and traveled thousands of miles to get to my kitchen cabinet. It's much more difficult to be a farmer whose livelihood depends on an unpredictable crop yield, being tasked with both adjusting to the realities of climate change and transforming their way of life as quickly as possible. Which was the part in the conversation I kept asking myself, how did we get here? The short answer to that question is the same answer to why Carver created hundreds of ways to use the peanut. Incentives. The reason that we have a cropping system, a food system the way that we have today, is because we have paid exclusively for yield. Right. That's all all we pay for. Right. Like farms profitability is directly tied to the amount of grain they can grow per acre. They don't feel the costs of water quality downstream. They don't feel the costs of um, water scarcity until like literally there's no water left. Right. All of these things are priced outside of that, both for good and for bad. They also don't get any value out of the services they do in terms of water filtration or greenhouse carbon sequestration, right? So there's no value in it to them to invest in. And what's exciting, you know, in our, our, our partnerships with Nori and with Indigo now is starting to see these corporate business-focused machines starting to now optimize yeah. on something more than just yield, right? So starting to say, how do we scale this commercially? Because commercially, this is now a priority. This is not just, 
it is also a sustainability societal priority for us as a company to, you know, do the right thing. But it's also now a commercial uh, focus for us. And that just fits right in to the way yeah. that capitalism works. And so if we're trying to make <laughs> change in the system today, not talking about yeah. capitalism, which would be another fun conversation, but yeah, like if we're going to make change in today in the next five years, which is sort of my time frame for thinking about these solutions, we need everything above. We need what's going to happen in the next five years. We need what's going to happen in the next 10 years. We need to think about what's going to happen in the next 30. But I think one of the roles that we can play, especially in a big company like Corteva is how do we accelerate change in the next five yeah, I, that's absolutely great, Emma. I love to hear that because it's very, like you say, you're using technology that is well understood. It's available now, and now it's just aligning the incentives to the outcomes. And I and I love you calling out also the value that farming provides that there is no financial recompense for at this time, and also to make sure that they understand that they are the incentives are aligned with the behaviors that we want, which which I think is is. You had some fantastic call-outs there, so it was really great to hear those. You've talked a lot about what you're currently working on. It seems like that's starting to pick up some steam. So what, what are the biggest obstacles that you and your team are facing right now? Man, one is just actually, it's not that fun. It's like climate accounting. Uh, the guidance for how you map and track and give credit to all the companies that need or want to take credit for that is, is, <laughs> is a headache. And it's moving slow. Um, and that's it's hard. It's complicated. And we need to get it right. But that's, I think, causing a lot of when I talk about, you know, how do we make sure that buyers are showing up to provide that value for farms so that they start to orient towards delivering ecosystem services. Those buyers themselves are feeling unsure of the quality of these offsets, these credits they're buying. Will they be able to get credit for it? Right. If they spend money on this, are they going to be able to tell their investors and meet their commitments to their investor groups that they've they've made on climate. And that slows things down because then if we don't have a reliable source of value, we can't go show up to farms and be like, you're going to get paid. And then we turn around and be like, maybe it's going to be next year, right? Like that just undercuts the speed at which we need to see this transition. So that stable source of value is impeded by this challenge in a lot of the climate accounting. Again, like it's a hard problem, but we just need yeah. a stable policy environment and one that really accelerates and clarifies the ways that these credits can count and the quality of them. Um, because there's a lot, like I look at the landscape myself If I didn't know the ins and outs of all these different programs, having th thought a lot about the science, gosh, like, you know, some people would say like, what's the one thing that you can do? It's just like, Oh geez, I can't even give you the one thing because it's a complicated <laughs> landscape. Um, yeah, and so that, yeah. that needs to go down um, for sure to make this, this easier on the buyer side. Often folks will say, man, carbon offsets are not the solution because okay. what, that's going to undercut people's ability to cut their own emissions. To which what I say strongly is that it's not an either or. That if we are in an either or situation right now with like either you're going to cut your emissions or you're going to buy offsets, we are totally screwed. That it has to be everything, all of the above, right? If you read the last IPCC report, we're going to need all of the emissions cutting and we're going to need all of the offsets. Um, and so I really want to encourage folks from all sides of the aisle to not get committed to one thing. And I think there is so much need for change that buying yeah. a few offsets is not going to actually insulate any of these companies from the need to reduce their emissions. I think that's just and, and it slows down. It slows down these markets, which are going to take years to develop. And we don't we don't have years anymore to develop these markets. Oh. So that's that's a anxiety provoking conversation of like, we just can't choose between the two at this point. 
Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I hope that people are starting to realize that it's like all levers, all all pedals being pushed at yeah. this point. Right? Direct air capture, nature-based yeah. solutions. Those are not in yeah. opposition either. Everything. Let's do it all. Yeah. All the time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm ready to go to Glasgow. All right. Send me off. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Emma, thanks for joining us. Um, it's been really great talking with you about uh, sustainability and specifically environmental sustainability and also agriculture. Um, I can talk about agriculture for a long period of time now. I've uh, really grown to appreciate it through my exposure, both to the people who are working on the commercial side of it and also the farmers themselves. And so it's it's a fascinating subject and I've really enjoyed hearing your take on it. And I, I really do, I love the energy and passion that you bring to it. And also just your very sort of pragmatic approach of what can we do now to help start moving things to get things going, right? I think that's really critical in addressing the many challenges that are facing us. So so thanks for joining us and good luck. And I hope that we talk to you again soon. It's been my complete pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's a wrap for this week. Thank you again to Emma Fuller of Corteva. Thank you, Dr. Shange from Tuskegee University. We'll include links to learn more about George Washington Carver, the Carver Integrative Sustainability Center, and much more at lookbothways.kinandcarta.com. This episode was written and produced by Max Parcell, with limited quippery from me, Scott Herms. Sound engineering by Chris Mitchell, original music by Ethan T. Parcell and Lucas Parcell. Follow us on Instagram at lookbothwayspodcast, and be sure to subscribe on your podcast dispenser of choice to not miss an episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to give us a five-star rating. You can also leave a comment at lookbothways.kinandcarta.com. Or if you want to contact us in a carbon-negative manner, you can spell out a message in the row crop of your choice this spring, and we'll be sure to pick it up from our Look Both Ways satellite in the fall. See you next episode. See you next episode.